You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Explorers. Today we begin our two-part series on the life of Spanish conquistador Vasco Núñez de Balboa. Balboa is most famous for being the first European to see the Pacific Ocean. But the man led quite the fascinating life, and his journeys and exploits are quite the captivating tale. But before we start, let's get a few things out of the way. First, as I have said before, my Spanish is awful. So I can promise you that I'm going to mispronounce and butcher so many things in this podcast. You might even be able to create a drinking game out of it. So please forgive me for my less-than-elite linguistic skills. Second, Balboa's life is not the most well-documented affair. He didn't have that one really big accomplishment that made people want to write about him. Finding the Pacific Ocean was important, but it really wasn't that sexy. I mean, going to the moon, conquering the Incas, discovering America circumnavigating the globe, climbing Mount Everest. Those are really tangible, easy-to-wrap-your-head-around accomplishments. No one says, when I grow up, I want to discover a big body of water no one knows about. It just isn't that sexy, even if the ramifications of such a discovery are enormous. Because of all this, historians have sort of regulated Balboa to second-tier status with regard to the explorer pantheon. They didn't write a lot about him at the time, and not that often since. There are just bigger fish to fry. Thus, most of our first-hand sources we have are more on the fringe of his life, writing many years later or relating the events from people who had actually been there. Ultimately, this means a lot of what we know is really open to second-guessing. But that's alright. We'll just do the best that we can. Dates may not be exact, and events may get muddied, but Balboa's story is really a pretty cool one, so we'll just roll with it and see how it goes. 1492 was a pivotal year in world history for obvious reasons. Christopher Columbus's discovery of the Americas opened up an entire new world to Europe, and there were men and women who saw dollar signs. But exploration in the new world in the 15th and 16th century was a slow process. The distance to these discoveries is long, and the big ocean blocking you is a bit of an issue. You just can't hop on a horse and head over and check things out. But it's more than just the logistics of getting to this new location. 
You have to actually survive once you arrive in this new land. The Americas are a rugged and dangerous place. Unfriendly natives, sickness, disease, starvation, they are all very real threats. Thus, creating a self-sustaining community was a tricky business, and for each one that succeeded, you had more than your share of failures, oftentimes with a lot of bodies involved. In the decades after Columbus came to the New World, explorers such as Amerigo Vespucci opened up more lands beyond the Caribbean. Two whole new continents, in fact, were there to be explored. In 1493, on his second voyage to the Caribbean, Columbus brought with him Rodrigo de Bastidas, a well-to-do notary from Tiana, Spain, which is near Seville. Bastidas apparently got the exploration bug after that voyage, because in 1499, he applied for and received royal permission to explore the emerging new world. It's important to know that, in Spain, you could not just go exploring without permission from the crown. The famed House of Trade in Seville, headed by Archbishop Fonseca, carefully controlled who, and who couldn't, sail to the New World. And they were very particular about exactly where you could go and what you could do. For Spain, Bastidas's expedition was part of a push to explore and colonize the region they called Tierra Firme. This area consisted of roughly what is modern-day Venezuela, Colombia, and Panama. For his expedition, Bastidas outfitted two ships using his own money. So for Bastidas and others like him, this was about gold. Expeditions like the one he undertook were privately financed. Exploring uncharted lands wasn't about the thrill of adventure, although that certainly appealed to some men. It was about making a profit on your investment. That meant acquiring valuables on your expedition. Gold was the big money maker, but we will find that pearls and slaves will also be valued commodities. Bastidas agreed that any gold or jewels or slaves or whatever he acquired, he would set aside one-fifth for the Spanish crown. He would keep the rest. The crown's portion was commonly referred to as the royal fifth. But there was also another goal of these expeditions in the late 1400s and early 1500s, and that was to find a way to the Far East, China, India, the Spice Islands. That had been Columbus's objective in 1492, to open up a new trade route to the east. So as the Spanish ships explored the Caribbean region, there was always the desire to discover a passage to the east, a passage we know they will never find. At least not until Magellan goes way, 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 way south and finds a strait with his name on it. Bastidas would travel to the New World in 1500, landing in what is modern-day Venezuela. He proceeded west along the northern coast of South America, eventually becoming the first European to reach what is modern-day Panama. During his explorations, Bastidas often avoided the use of force when acquiring gold and pearls and other valuables. He instead traded with the natives he encountered. In fact, Bastidas would be called Spain's noblest conquistador due to his policy of being respectful of the native peoples. Of course, being the noblest conquistador didn't stop Bastidas from taking slaves when he had the opportunity. I guess he was just nice about it. For us, the key thing is that Bastidas brought with him a young soldier on his expedition, a man named Vasco Núñez de Balboa. Balboa was born in Jerez de los Caballeros, Spain, in 1475. He was the third of four boys in his family. His father was a Hidalgo, a nobleman without much money or influence or hereditary title. Vasco Núñez would serve as a page and a squire to Don Pedro de Porto Carrero, Lord of Morgare, a small city in southwest Spain. As a squire, he would have learned the arts of war, 
and he was said to have excelled in such things as swordsmanship. At Morgare, he would also likely have been educated. He would have probably at least dabbled in subjects such as history and mathematics and religion and science. In the late 1400s, Spain was at relative peace as Granada had been wrested from the Moors in 1492, thus unifying the region under King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. The need for soldiers was not great, so Balboa probably joined Bastidas' expedition with the intention of making himself some money. On the expedition, Balboa would have learned a great deal about the regions of Colombia and Panama. He also would have seen the results of Bastidas' decisions, especially with regard to how he dealt with the native peoples. Bastidas found that the natives were more than willing to trade their gold, which they used mostly for ornaments. The natives liked their gold, but they preferred a good hatchet. I mean, that they could actually use. In such a fashion, Bastidas acquired a significant amount of gold on his journey. And let's remember that surviving in the Americas meant more than just acquiring wealth. You couldn't eat pearls in gold. Bastidas would have needed to get food and supplies as he explored the area. Without the help of the natives, starvation was a very real threat to any expedition or settlement in the New World. The Bastidas expedition was traveling up the coast of Panama when they realized that shipworms were threatening their vessels. Shipworms are small saltwater clams that bore into anything wood. They will literally eat the hull of a ship. They are called the termites of the sea, and they are particularly destructive in the Tierra Firmea region. Realizing that the small fleet couldn't reach Spain with their compromised hulls, Bastidas headed north to Hispaniola, modern-day Dominican Republic, and Haiti. Bastidas's ships literally sank in port when they reached the island. The crew rescued a bunch of the treasure, but the slaves chained in the hold went down. I guess it was about priorities. Bastidas was forced to march overland to Santo Domingo, the island's main port, trading with the local natives along the way for food and supplies. The problem for Bastidas was that his charter did not give him the right to trade with anyone on the island of Hispaniola. This might not seem like a big deal, but at the time, this was a major no-no. The region's governor was extraordinarily protective of the rights granted to him by the Spanish crown. No one wanted to have another explorer encroaching on their territory. This led the governor of the island, Francisco de Bobadilla, to toss Bastidas into prison when he arrived in Santo Domingo, charging him with illegal trading with the natives. This seems to have been Bobadilla's way to legally confiscate the treasure that Bastidas had accumulated on his voyage. Bastidas would then be shipped back to Spain to face trial. Bobadilla would be recalled to Spain in 1502, but on his return, his ship, one of a 31-vessel fleet, was caught in a hurricane shortly after leaving Santa Domingo. I have read that as many as 27 of the ships went down, including Bobadilla's. So it appears the treasure from Bastidas' expedition went back to Spain, or more likely went down to the bottom of the ocean. Who knows? Bastidas would eventually be cleared of all the charges, and he would return to Santa Domingo and lead a prosperous life. He would command other expeditions to the New World, including one to Colombia in the 1520s. There, his men would turn on him due to a dispute over how much gold they were due. He would be stabbed five times and eventually die from his wounds. But enough of Bastidas. On to Balboa. The next few years are a little murky, but the main thing is that Balboa remained in Hispaniola, and he eventually decided to try his hand as a farmer. He acquired a plot of land on the western side of the island and decided to raise pigs and grow crops. One source says he was granted the land as a gift by Nicolas de Ovando, the new governor of the island. 
Some reports have Balboa campaigning against the local natives in Hispaniola with Ponce de Leon, he of the Fountain of Youth fame. Now is probably a good time to introduce a new character to our story, and that is Leoncito. Leoncito, which means little lion, was a dog. He was reportedly a Spanish mastiff. The mastiff is a large and powerful animal, and Balboa got the dog as a puppy. Legend has it it was a gift from Ponce de Leon, hence the name Leoncito. Balboa would raise the dog to be his fighting companion. This was not unusual, as the Spanish used dogs in combat during this time period. Many of the dogs would have armor made specially for them. The Spanish would unleash packs of them on their enemy, a tactic especially effective in the Americas, as many of the natives had never encountered large domesticated canines before. Leoncito was supposedly so effective as a war dog, he would receive a share of the loot that was taken, just like any other soldier. Okay, puppy edition is done, so back to the story. Balboa apparently did not thrive in his life as a farmer. He had to borrow money to keep the farm afloat, and eventually he realized he was not cut out for such a gig. He saw an opportunity to get out when an expedition to Tierra Firme came knocking. They were looking for men to go adventuring, and Balboa decided it was a good time to skedaddle. So what was this expedition? Let's find out. In 1508, two men, Alonso de Ojeda and Diego de Nacusa, were awarded charters to explore the lands of Tierra Firme. For this, the Spanish crown established two provinces in the region. The demarcation point between these two provinces was the Gulf of Uraba. The Gulf of Uraba is a large, wide inlet on the northern coast of Colombia. It's right where Panama and Colombia connect, and I recommend taking a look on a map to see it. I posted one on explorerspodcast.com. Essentially, Ojeda got everything on the eastern side of the Gulf, which would mean much of Colombia and Venezuela, and Nacusa got everything on the western side, which would be modern-day Panama. The exact demarcation point was the Darien River, which is now called the Atrato River. Ojeda's province was called Nueve Andalusia, while Nacusa's was called Veraguay, or Darien. I find them used interchangeably in history books, and I'm going to use the latter, Darien. I mention all of this because the details will be important later, so let's not forget them. Also, let us not forget the purpose of these two men. Yes, they had come to explore and colonize, but the main reason they were there was for gold. Previous expeditions, such as Bastidas's, had hinted it was plentiful. The explorers were not there to plant crops or enjoy the flora. They were there to make money. Of the two men, Nacusa was better financed, so his expedition was considered more robust. But Ojeda was a veteran of exploring the region, and had critical experience that Nacusa lacked. Without a ton of money at his disposal, Ojeda elected to lead an advance element of his expedition to Tierra Firme, departing Santo Domingo in November of 1509. His colleague, Martin Fernandez de Anciso, would raise more men and supplies and follow when everything was ready. Anciso was a lawyer who had been promised the position of mayor of the new colony. Ojeda's expedition of four small ships and 300 men arrived in what is now Cartagena, on the northern shore of Colombia. He landed with 70 men and proceeded to inform the natives that they encountered that they were now subjects of the King of Spain, and they had to turn over their gold and their food, and, by the way, worship a new god. That, of course, went over really well, and a fight quickly broke out. After scattering the natives, the Spanish pursued into the interior, wanting to loot their villages, because remember, it's all about getting gold. 
Unfortunately for the Spanish, they were no match for the natives in this unknown jungle environment. In short order, the Spanish were hightailing it back to their ships, fighting a running battle the entire way. It would be a slaughter. Only two of the 70 men survived, including Ojeda. It was here that Nakusa, whose fleet had become lost, arrived on the scene. Although Nakusa and Ojeda did not like each other, Nakusa wasn't going to let a fellow Spaniard die. Nakusa, whose fleet numbered seven vessels and 800 men, landed troops to aid his comrade. They marched on the native village and killed everyone that they could find. Bartolomé de las Casas, a Dominican friar and historian writing just a few years after the events, recorded this description as said by one of the men involved. Quote, the Spaniards worked an incredible slaughter on that village. They spared no one, woman, children, babies, or not. Then they robbed. End quote. I think that pretty much sums it up. It would be the template for far too many encounters between the Spanish and the indigenous peoples of the Americas. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. After the bloodletting, Nikusa headed west to the lands he was chartered to settle and exploit. Ojeda proceeded to the Gulf of Uraba, where he established a settlement on the eastern shore. He called the little colony San Sebastian. Since the expedition was there for loot, Ojeda and his men immediately began to scout out the region, fighting any natives they encountered and seizing any provisions, as well as treasures. Gold was plentiful in the region, and the natives used it for all sorts of ornaments, such as earrings and bracelets and figurines. The Spanish saw any native village as a source for gold. Back in Hispaniola, Enciso was recruiting men and buying supplies that would be needed by Ojeda in San Sebastian. But things went slowly, and weeks dragged into months. That is when Balboa comes into our story. As noted, Balboa was deeply in debt. As an experienced soldier and a man who had sailed the Tierra Firme region, he would have been perfect to have on any expedition. The problem was that he owed too much money. 
For obvious reasons, laws prevented a man from leaving the colony with such a substantial debt. Neither Nakusa or Ojeda could have taken on Balboa, even if they had wanted to. So to escape his creditors, Balboa had to exit the island stealthily. The legend is that Balboa, along with his faithful dog, Leoncito, stowed away inside an empty barrel on one of Enciso's ships. It's a great story, the noble warrior and his faithful dog hiding out to go adventuring. How true it is, we don't know. But once he was discovered, Enciso decided Balboa's experience in the region might come in handy, and he decided not to drop Balboa's butt on the next deserted island. Balboa would thus become part of a four-ship, 150-man relief force. Back in San Sebastian, things were not going well. The climate was unhealthy and the natives hostile. With the locals shooting poison arrows at the Spanish from behind every tree, it was almost impossible to forage for food, so starvation was a serious threat. The Spanish had made no real attempts to work with the local peoples to acquire food, instead threatening and killing and imprisoning them whenever possible. For the men in San Sebastian, eight months had passed since arriving in South America, and Enciso still had not arrived with reinforcements and the desperately needed supplies. It was then that a ship arrived at the colony. The ship was a brigantine, which is a small two-masted vessel. At this time in history, it would have had eight to twelve oars on a side, so again, it wasn't big. But it was fast and maneuverable, a favorite of pirates and smugglers. Due to the smaller size, it could sail up rivers and get much closer to land than the bigger caravels and carracks commonly used in this era. The ship was commanded by Bernardino de Talavera, and he was pretty much a pirate. He had been scouring the region, looking to steal gold and pearls from the natives. Talavera provided the colony with much-needed food, and he agreed to take Ojeda back to Hispaniola to organize a relief force, because at this point Ojeda figured Enciso wasn't coming. Ojeda would leave a young soldier, Francisco Pizarro, in charge of the fort at San Sebastian. Pizarro, who history knows as the conqueror of Peru, will be an important person in our tale. The young soldier's orders were to wait 50 days, the time Ojeda said it would take to get to Hispaniola and back with a relief force. And if he did not return, Pizarro was to try and get the survivors to civilization in any way possible. Ojeda loaded up all the gold and pearls they had accumulated, that was how he was going to pay for the relief force, and he set sail. Unfortunately, Talavera proved to be the pirate we described him as. Ojeda was promptly clamped in the chains, and his loot was taken. However, the small brigantine would get caught in a hurricane, and the crew barely managed to get the vessel to Cuba, where it sank. The survivors spent months slogging through the swamps and jungles of Cuba. Only 12 men from the ship, including Ojeda, would survive. They would eventually reach Santo Domingo, where Ojeda learned Enciso had indeed set sail to relieve San Sebastian. Talavera would be hung by the local authorities. As a side note, Ojeda, while struggling through the jungles of Cuba, had promised to build a church on the first village who welcomed him. He would keep that promise, and the man would never go adventuring again. He renounced his governorship and spent the last five years of his life in Santo Domingo. He died sick and poor and without a penny to his name. He seemed to regret the death and misery he had caused in his life, and he requested that, when he died, that he be buried beneath the door of the Monastery of St. Francis, so that all the visitors could walk over his grave as a penance for the errors of his life. After the fifty days had passed since Ojeda's departure, Pizarro made plans to return to Hispaniola. There were about seventy colonists remaining at that point. 
Pizarro had two brigantines, which were in bad shape, with which to make a run back to safety. Unfortunately, a storm struck shortly after departing San Sebastian, and one of the brigantines sank, all hands being lost. Pizarro was left with only one vessel and about 35 colonists when he sighted Enciso's ships. The arrival of the relief force likely saved Pizarro and the remaining colonists. Pizarro told the newcomers of the dangers that lay ahead, stressing that there was no way for a colony to survive in the era due to the hostile natives. Enciso ignored Pizarro's warnings and ordered the fleet on to San Sebastian, only to find that the natives had burned the fort to the ground. The expedition was at a crossroads. Enciso was reluctant to return to Hispaniola. He had invested a lot in the expedition, and to turn around now would be a financial disaster. Everyone, however, agreed that they couldn't stay in San Sebastian. The conduct of the first Spanish colonists had poisoned any chance for a friendly relationship with the natives, and a food shortage was looming. It is now that Balboa steps up as a leader of the fledgling colony. Historians have regarded him as a charismatic, confident, and gifted man, and in a time of crisis, it's not shocking that the colonists would look to such a person. Remember, Balboa has been to this region before, with the Bastidas expedition almost a decade ago. He knew how the natives operated, he knew the challenges the fleet faced, and he had specific information that could actually help out. To that end, Balboa suggested that the colony there were now about 180 people, go across the Gulf of Uraba to the western shore, where he said he knew the natives were less hostile and the land was good for planting crops. Without a whole lot of other options, the colony voted to accept Balboa's plan, and the soldier took roughly 100 men across the bay and led them to a village run by the local cacica, or chieftain, named Sumaco. Sumaco had 500 warriors with him and was ready for a fight. As Balboa and his men went forward to battle Sumaco, they reportedly pledged to fight to the death. They prayed to an image of the Virgin Mary, and promised that if they won the battle, they would name the settlement they wanted to start after her. But before we get to our battle, let's assess the opposing forces. The Spanish, remember, have come for conquest, and they are ready. They were soldiers. Many wore breastplates and helmets along with greaves and gauntlets, the latter to protect the hands and arms and legs. Others likely wore simple chainmail, as the heavier armor was not particularly suited to the tropical environment. Large shields were uncommon, but it would not have been out of place to see a man using a buckler or a small shield. But remember, armor was not the same throughout the expedition, so it was not like every soldier was lined up looking exactly the same. More than not, a man simply wore what he could afford. The Spanish were mostly infantry, which means that they would have been armed with swords and metal-tipped spears and pikes. There would have also been some men with arquebuses, an early form of muzzle-loading firearm. The arquebus was not a particularly effective weapon. It was horribly inaccurate, slow to reload, and dangerous to operate. But it scared the crap out of people who had never seen one before, and when it did hit someone, it could do horrible damage. One report at the time had the natives believing the Spanish could control thunder and lightning after seeing their weapons in action. The Spanish also had crossbows, which, while slow, were brutally effective. In all this, the weapon that probably did the big damage was the old-fashioned sword. The arquebus and the crossbow were designed to pierce armor, but that was not needed here. Sure, they were great for a shot or two, but when the fighting got down to it, the Spanish swords, some of the finest steel in the world, tore apart the natives. Another weapon the Spanish employed were their war dogs. It is not known how many of the expedition had brought, 
but Leoncito and any other dogs would have been unleashed on the enemy once the battle began. The locals had never seen such dogs, and having a pack of snarling animals tearing apart your comrade would have likely terrified them. The last thing the Spanish brought to the Americas were horses. Not just pack horses, but war horses. A war horse was a beast trained to plow into the enemy and crush him to death. It doesn't appear that Balboa had any war horses in this battle, but he would later use them in other conflicts. They were expensive, and the jungles were not the best environment to use them. The natives in this region would likely have carried rudimentary clubs, perhaps with a stone or bronze head. Some may have used simple wooden swords or short wooden spears. Most of it was woefully ineffective against the Spanish armor. The natives fared better with their missile weapons, specifically the bow and arrow. An arrow couldn't penetrate the Spanish armor, but a poison-tipped arrow slipping through at just the right spot could be deadly. Whatever armor the local natives wore was mostly ceremonial and nothing more than padding. It offered little protection against the Spanish weapons. The details of the battle with Sumaco are not known, but just know that despite being outnumbered 5-1, to one, the Spanish defeated the Casica after a difficult fight. The Spanish looted Sumaco's village, finding many gold items, and just as important, food. Any natives seized were likely put to work as slaves. It is not known exactly how big Sumaco's village was, but the natives in the region tended to gather in groups of about 1 to 2,000, although we will find some as large as 10,000. With the victory against Sumaco, the rest of the colonists were brought to the site of the native village, and they elected to build their colony on the location, which was three miles from the coast running along the Torina River. The settlement was called Santa Maria de la Antigua del Darien, or simply Santa Maria, the name fulfilling the pledge the soldiers had made before their battle with the natives. Santa Maria is recognized as the first permanent European settlement on the American continents. And Ciso, if you recall, held the position of mayor of the province, and with Ojeda gone, he was the acting governor. Unfortunately, Enciso didn't seem to have the tact or skill set needed for running a frontier colony. He told the soldiers that as governor, all the gold was his, and he would distribute it as he saw fit. He threatened to have any man trading illegally with the natives put to death. This, of course, ran over really, really well. The colonists had come here for wealth, specifically gold, and now Enciso was denying them that opportunity. It was then that the disgruntled colonists pointed out that Santa Maria had been established on the western shore of the Gulf of Uraba. This was technically Nacusa's territory, not Ojeda's. Thus, Enciso's appointment as mayor was invalid in this region. Boom, the lawyer had just gotten schooled. The result was that the colonists voted Enciso out of power, electing Balboa and a man named Martin Zamudio as their new leaders. It should be noted that the colony realized that they were in Nucusa's territory. Their little town was technically not sanctioned. Some even suggested finding Nucusa and joining forces with him. All that talk would come to a head in November of 1510, when a pair of ships arrived in Santa Maria under the command of Rodrigo Enriquez de Colmenares, a lieutenant of Nucusa's. Colmenares was bringing food and arms, as well as 60 reinforcements, to his boss. Unfortunately, they could not find Nucusa. The small relief expedition gave the colony some much-needed supplies, then moved on with their search. Members of the colony asked Colmenares to invite Nacusa to Santa Maria when they found him. Colmenares would eventually track down Nacusa up the coast at a small fort he had built called Nombre de Dios. 
Nakusa's expedition had been ravaged by warfare, disease, and starvation. When Nakusa heard of the colony at Santa Maria, he was reportedly furious that Ojeda's men had crossed into his territory. He gathered what troops he could and headed for the upstart community, with the intention of taking control, as well as arresting the officers and taking any loot the colonists had acquired. We talked earlier about the can and can't do's with regard to encroaching on other men's territories. We might think this silly. I mean, these guys are just barely struggling to survive, and they're getting into petty squabbles about who can set up shop in a specific location. But it was a big deal to these men. Many had sunk their fortunes and risked their lives on their expedition. To let someone flaunt the rules was a threat to a man's entire livelihood and honor. The gold taken from the natives in Santa Maria was essentially gold taken from Nikusa's pocket, at least from Nikusa's point of view. Well, royal charter aside, Nikusa was not greeted kindly when he arrived in Santa Maria. The colonists had worked hard to make a decent home, and who was this guy to show up all high and mighty and take everything? The colonists had voted out one foolish ruler, so why not a second? Nikusa's legal claims were not going to help him, and he didn't have enough soldiers to take on Balboa and his men. So the colonists in Santa Maria gave him the heave-ho. On March 1st, 1511, the governor was loaded onto the worst ship available, along with 17 of his most loyal followers, and told to take a hike. The ship sailed away, and Nikusa would never be heard from again. As noted, the ship was in poor shape, reportedly barely seaworthy. The colony had technically not killed Nikusa and his followers, but they hadn't really given them much of a chance to survive either. Balboa seems to have played the role of quiet instigator during all of this. He never publicly called for the actions that were taken, but he likely had no problem encouraging the behavior that led to Nikusa's demise. The men from Nikusa's expedition, including those left up at Nombre de Dios, joined up with Balboa and the colony of Santa Maria. Nikusa's lieutenant, Colmenares, would become one of Balboa's closest allies. It was about this time that Balboa went after Anciso. The former mayor was put on trial for usurping his authority and then tossed in jail, and all of his possessions were confiscated. Balboa would release Anciso on the condition he returned to Hispaniola and then to Spain, so the former mayor was put on the next boat out of town. With Nikusa's disappearance and Anciso's exile, Balboa would become governor of Darien, the undisputed ruler of the province. We have seen some deft maneuvering from Balboa. He had started as a stowaway, and within a year he had founded a town, gotten two rulers tossed out, and become the governor. Not a bad job, and probably a testimony to his intelligence and leadership skills. As we have said, Balboa seems to have had a personality that people trusted in times of crisis, he mixed boldness and confidence with pragmatism, and he seems to have understood what was needed to survive. He recognized the need for a stable community with a regular source of food. And unlike so many explorers, Balboa didn't just land and start shooting. We'll see that he uses a variety of tactics to get what he wants. When he needs to trade, he'll trade. When he needs to conquer, he'll conquer. When he needs to scheme, he will scheme. He was also the kind of man who seemed to learn from others, he saw the success and the failures of men like Bastidas and Ojeda and Anciso, and he seemed to learn from those examples. Another important thing is that Balboa developed a reputation for being very fair with his men. When the colony took in gold, he divided it up fairly. He didn't cheat anyone out of their share of the loot, and as a result, the soldiers and the colonists trusted him. Again, let's remember why Balboa and the colonists are here. It's treasure. 
gold was the main reason, but pearls will become important as well. Balboa will trade for gold when he gets the chance, and he'll take it by force if necessary. He will also be diligent about collecting and sending back to Spain the royal fifth, the crown's share of the treasure. This was important, and Balboa recognized it. He was not a person with high-up friends in the Spanish court. He was playing a dangerous game. He had usurped the power of royal appointees. The only way to legitimize what he was doing was to make himself indispensable to the crown. That meant getting the treasure back to Spain. If they saw his value, they would no doubt overlook what he had done in Santa Maria. Balboa was now firmly entrenched as the leader of Darien. He had started a small but thriving community. His men had been successful in the field, and the gold they all desired was coming in. But there are bigger things on the horizon for Balboa. Literally, really, really big things. So next time on Explorers, we will conclude the tale of Vasco Nunez de Balboa. We will have lots of battles and betrayals and discoveries as Balboa begins to expand his area of influence, eventually crossing the Isthmus of Panama and catching sight of a big old body of water that no one knew existed. Thanks for listening. I will see you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.